let her do it during Bible study. <laughs> she may as well do it now. Yeah, you would think, but <laughs> gotten to the point where so we my parents went in together and got the kids a trampoline as a joint birthday present. And you know what the big argument is, Mama, get us outside more. I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. And so now they'll go outside. I'm, I'm like, go get some energy out. They'll go outside. They'll jump about twice. And then they lay down. And they just lay there. <laughs> and so I'm like, guys, when I tell you to go outside and play, like, I want you to move your body. But it's so hot. I'm so tired. All these excuses. And then it gets to be 9 o'clock at night. And Duke's been laying in bed for half an hour. And he can't fall asleep. I'm like, you laid around on the trampoline. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm like, you gotta, when I say to move, like, I, I'm not just trying to be mean. And, well, <laughs> I am trying to tire you out, but I'm not trying to be mean about it. That's what you want them to enjoy doing it. Exactly. Is he a reader? Yes, he is. He is. I was always in trouble for not helping out at home and sitting and reading my, mm -hmm. my books when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I'm still, of course, I don't read really what I'm supposed to, but reading doesn't burn off many calories. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. It's relaxing. Oh. Yes. My grandson's going to be a year old next Michelle Thompson and Evelyn Lee were talking about how you know, Michelle and Dave's grandbabies were born yeah. last week, uh -huh. um, and she had twins. Yeah, I think we gave thanks for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, I think Evelyn said that their baby, I think she said they were due yesterday. Uh huh. But they were both talking about how, you know, for one, they're both far out of state, but they're like, plus, they're worried about COVID and everything. So they're like, these are our first grandbabies, but we don't know when we'll be able to see them. Oh, oh how sad. I know. I know. It's, it's so hard. Yes, I know. Of course, when all this first started, mine live here. That's and nice. so it started, it, and uh, my granddaughter's birthday was in April. So. I had a gift and everything, you know. Mm -hmm. So I told my son, I said, Brian, I'm going to break the law. I've got to see those babies. Yeah. I hadn't seen them in several weeks. Yeah. So, and he's Absolutely. like, come on over, Mom. I told you you could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, at least they don't live in there. Yeah, yeah. Borkart's right along the path. That's what I saw. He's north. It should only be like a cat one by the time it gets him. That's wow. right. But uh, he's just, it's a suburb of Shreveport. Um, oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. And what? so, yeah, like it, it, the worst of it should hopefully pass by the time it hits him, but they're I racing would, for him. I would gladly take some of that rain. Nice. Stuff. Some of the rain without the wind, yeah. Uh -huh. Civilized water costs are so mm -hmm. high. Yeah, we're getting insurance too. Are you really? Uh -huh. Yeah, I know my sister had a high one. She lives, um, she has a insurance address. So. Yeah. Like, I just look at it to make sure nothing's leaking. Uh, if there's like that, yeah. that hurts, but I, that's probably reasonable. I'm just going to pay. Uh, yes. Well, you know, it was weird. I guess it was last month. Thank goodness. They sent me this email because they said a mistake was made on your water bill. When you get it, it is not $602. Oh, and I said, oh, it better not be. Right. See, that's the size that I'm looking out for. So yeah. I can, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think I heard about that, about a lot of people getting uh -huh. a very incorrect yeah. water bill. And it, I mean, still, it was still $100 because mm -hmm. I had to water more last month. Mm -hmm. But... Oh. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> funny. I can't afford 
it's like my water bill is as much as my electricity bill. And I use electricity 24 seven. Hey. So I don't right. quite understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the kids today were, uh, they actually will put the underneath the trampoline. Mm -hmm. And a while while I was an a student, and mom, because we've had problems with them leaving the faucet on outside. Oh, oh no. And we're like, yep. And so then they're like, mom, do you, every time, do you have to pay for the every time we use the water? Do you have to pay for it? I'm like, yeah, yes. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, thank you, thank you, you must love us, thank you so much. Mom. That's one of God's blessings to you, paying for the water, right? <laughs> well, did I tell you where? The other day I was buying groceries, and Zoe had found a penny, and she's like, "Mommy, I want to help you," and I'm like. Texas is really different, though, depending on because it's big enough. And mm -hmm. we lived down in uh, when I was first married out at Monahans, which is a little town west of Odessa, okay, West Texas. Way and, out there. Uh, the big part about that is it doesn't have the humidity, and uh, it was really great. Then we lived up near Dallas. Then we lived in this little town south of Winsfield Falls called Graham, my mm -hmm. favorite. Okay. If I ever didn't live here, yeah. that's where I'd like to go. I like San Antonio. I like I like the culture and I love the food. And you know, for oh, yeah. a city as big as it is, it doesn't feel as big as it is. Yeah, like it, I, I mean, I like I learned to drive in Chicago for city traffic, and this is nothing compared to Chicago. Like it's just it's it's peaceful. I'm a very impatient driver, so and I admit it. Um, it's it's sad. No, I'm I'm not the most patient, but uh, Chicago is just. Dangerous. <laughs> mm -hmm. yes. yes, I was glad I was heading south on 35 this evening, though, because north on 35 is pretty bad. I heard there was, Sarah was late to a youth group. There's an accident, I guess, along mm -hmm. four to ten and something, too. Mm -hmm. It's getting to be. I heard that by Calabria, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay, yeah. Yeah, so I used to be on So I used to drive all around. And, Mm -hmm. It didn't bother me. It must be because I'm old and cranky now. But. Just, just relaxing is all. <laughs> well, I think I'll give myself a heart attack. Uh, all right. Well, I think we're about at time. You guys hear me okay? Super. Sort of, sort of. How about now? Am I a little better now? You're good to go here. That's good. Fantastic. All right. Um, do you guys have any questions or anything you would like to talk about before we get started? Remember to unmute yourself if you uh, if you need to. Yeah. What about the polygamist? All right. So um, the polygamist. This is a good question because it's one of those things that um, in the New Testament is is uh, reflected upon differently than in the Old Testament. And so we know our God doesn't change, but at the same time, there there was um there there were uh, deuteral marriages um in in the Old Testament. In other words, um you saw, for example, David had more than one wife, Solomon had more than one wife. Even in the the Levitical code, given um if, for example, um your brother's wife died, you were commanded to take her as your wife, even if you already had a wife. Um, 
and so there's a question then as far as where polygamy fits in having more than one um, spouse and two things hold true. Um, so let's, let's sort of grab what God gives. When God made a perfect creation, there was nothing wrong at all with creation. There was Adam and Eve and nobody else. It is not proper to have more than one. It is not ideal. And so even go through when, when these things were, were um, so to speak, sanctioned by God, how did it work out for David? How did it work out for Solomon? How did it work out for any of the people who actually did this? As it turns out, this isn't good. They're not very well at all. In the Old Testament, uh, there was a, a provision um, because uh, of two things. First, uh, what sort of vocations were there for women that actually let them earn an income? There were no godly vocations. There, there were vocations. There, there, I can't even rightly call it a vocation. There were things that women did to earn money, but they were not godly. Um, and, and so God didn't want to see these women starve. And second, was there a difference between the government and the church in the Old Testament, or were they the same function? They were the same. You were just Israel. Like now you can be a Christian and a Canadian or a Christian and an American or a Christian and a Nigerian. You can belong to any country and still be a Christian. Back then, if you were a faithful one, you were of the nation of Israel. And so this was a theocracy. And at that time, um, therefore, God's uh, way of, of dealing with the, the government side of this was to make sure that the women didn't starve. And so they were brought in to make sure that there was always somebody to, to take care of them and the children. Um, it was still never ideal, but especially in the New Testament, then when the church is sent to all nations, um, this, this goes away. Uh, because, uh, again, now we have people living in, in cultures where there are other means that uh, the women are being provided for, other governments, other systems. Um, and so even while it was happening, it was never sort of um, idealized. Even when it was happening, it was always sort of said, this isn't going to be ideal at all. I'm not saying it can't work, but this isn't ideal. Um, but even it goes so far to double down in the New Testament, um, when Paul is talking to Timothy about what a pastor should be, he says, a husband of one wife. So here, we're, we're making a real firm line here, um, because this is not ideal. And now, no. And so for us, we would say, polygamy, uh, don't do that. Just don't do that. Nothing good is going to come from it. Um, does that kind of answer it? Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of because they, I mean, they don't think they're cheating. Well, and so inside of the right of marriage, it's it not. But at the same time, that's not a marriage that's necessarily designed to succeed. And those are two different things, too. Um, and so I can say, like, you, you never want to sort of see it or, or, or watch it happen. But every once in a while, you see two people get together, and you're like, oh, that's not going to work. Um, and, and, like, everybody watching is like, don't, oh, this... It's like watching a train crash, and at the same time, if they're married, is it a godly marriage? Yeah, the, it, it, it might not be ideal, but it's not what they're doing isn't adultery by any means. It's just not probably going to go so well. Uh, polygamy, triple it, like quadruple it. Um, it it's, it's not a good approach, and, and now especially, we can even start to talk about it as if it were sinful. Uh, because in the New Testament, again, um, this isn't a, a government body that is to, to sort of take care. This isn't a social um, program. Uh, now, uh, we, we uh, have been uh, gifted with a, um, a civilization where, first of all, are there godly vocations for women to earn an income? Praise God. Um, like, honestly, this, this is an improvement. Um, uh, is there a, a system in play? Um, and we can spend a lot of time talking about whether or not it's good or bad or how well it's done and well, it's... But, uh, are there systems in place in different governments to help take care of the people who fall between the cracks socially? And praise God. Is the church still an, uh, an agent of charity here? Again, yes, praise God. But now we're given the gift where the church can be an agent of charity without necessarily needing to say, now you're also married to this person. Um, we're, we're in a better position now, and praise God for this. Uh, but you also saw it in the Old Testament, too. When God first set up the nation of Israel after they settled in the land of Cain, after, you know, Joshua went in, did he give them a king or did he give them some judges? He gave them some judges, yeah. And all the people said, we want a king. And God's like, that's a bad idea. No, you don't. And all the people are like, no, we want a king. And God was like, I'm telling you, man. And he gave them Saul. Well, Saul is the king. This is what kings are like. Kings are sinners. Um, you can even go to the good ones. David was an adulterer and a murderer, but he was a king. Um, and so this, the kings are, are well, sinners. 
Um, but at the same time, God in his mercy would not say the doors of heaven are closed because you made bad choices. And this is where we can start to find um, how we want to talk about this in light of the gospel. If you want to sort of close the doors to heaven on everybody who makes a bad choice, again, very lonely place, and we completely discount Christ and his cross. But as we deal with this, we see God in a lot of ways um, will work with us even when we're dumb. But, but also um, a, a wonderful uh, thing is that um, God will not forsake us because of, of our sinful choices. He continues to pursue us. He, he continues to gather us in. And so when we talk about polygamy, like let's say flat out, that's bad. Don't do that now. You don't need that. That never even worked out well when it was um, necessary, so to speak. But like at the same time, uh, the, the purpose of this was put in um, basically to keep women from having to put themselves in unspeakable positions where they had to try and make ends meet. Um, it was done to try and promote um, love and care for neighbor. Um, and um, that's the, the part that, that should be maintained. What did you know? No, I'm just wondering how these religions think it can be acceptable to God in this day and time. Most of the ones still doing it are cults. Like, I mean, just flat out, uh, what you see, at least in this day and age, uh, since about the year 800, uh, is when, uh, like, just like everybody just really added down. Christianity had spread, uh, the West was, was there, um, the Gnostics were by and large out of, of Christendom. Um, but the people who are like strong proponents of uh, polygamy were always the leaders of the religion who seemed to just really want to have. Yeah, so you have, um, you have uh, the prophet Muhammad, the prophet so-called Muhammad. You have uh, the so-called prophet Joseph Smith for the Mormons. Uh, the people doing it, like oddly enough, are, are benefiting profusely from the new rules of their religion. That, that's usually a, a cue. Like guys, God just spoke to me and uh, what he really needs is for, I need a hot tub in my house. It's part of our religion now. Um, you see if the whole part of the, the tenet of the religion benefits the, the leader of it, that's usually a sign something screwy is happening. <laughs> Um, on the other hand, you have Jesus telling the disciples um, that, uh, well, if they're doing these things to me, what do you expect them to do to you? Go to how the disciples were, were lost. Go to, you know, martyrdom in the church. Um, and this also speaks to the prosperity evangelists. Like, uh, I mean, you got one in Houston that basically has the old rocket stadium. Um, and like Oprah is deeply impressed with his house. Um, everything that goes on in the church directly benefits him. That's a bad sign, right? So like that, that's again how uh, in this day and age, uh, so-called religions are, are pushing this. They're usually cults because they're not based around a, a tenant. They're based around a man. And you see that because as soon as this man goes, do they completely collapse in war? So as soon as Joseph Smith died, the, the, um, the Mormons went after it. And if it were not for Brigham Young, um, who did not great things to take hold of it. Um, Islam's still fighting now between the Sunni and the Shia after Muhammad. Um, it, it, it goes poorly because it's not based around a set of truths. It, it's based around people. Um, and this is actually where marriage as a whole is supposed to speak to something bigger. Um, because I can say, am I a perfect example of a husband? And don't laugh. No, obviously not. But at the same time, marriage um, is given to us in Ephesians, talks about the relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. So it's actually talking about something bigger. It's supposed to relate to something bigger than ourselves. And so I can say, even though I am not the perfect example of this, there is something more. And if you were to pick up any two, you say, this is what it's a picture of. A perfect image, no. But this is what it's trying to display. Um, it's, it's a set truth that different people can sort of take hold of the office, but the truth exists even without the people inside of it. That's good. Y'all follow questions, comments out there? All right, we are in paragraph 213. If you can see the screen share, if you got it at home, hopefully you're following. Here we go. In the sixth commandment, again, you shall not commit adultery. From this you shall see how this popish rabble, priests, monks, and nuns resist God's order and commandment inasmuch as they despise and forbid matrimony and presume and vow to maintain perpetual chastity and beside deceive the simple-minded with lying words and appearances. 
For no one has so little love and inclination to chastity as just those who, because of great sanctity, avoid marriage and either indulge in open and shameless prostitution or secretly do even worse, though that one dare not speak of it and has, alas, been learned too fully. And in short, even though they abstain from the act, their hearts are so full of unchaste thoughts and evil lust that there is a continual burning, a secret suffering, which can be avoided in the married life. Therefore, all vows of chastity out of the married state are condemned by this commandment. And free permission is granted, yet even commandment is given to all poor and stared consciences, which have been deceived by their monastic vows to abandon the unchaste state and enter married life, considering that even if the monastic life were godly, it would nevertheless not be in their power to maintain chastity. And if they remain in it, they must only sin more and more against this commandment. So here where you actually see again, Luther driving at, at a question of, of, of the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And remember in our small catechism, we talked about this last week, this is one of the two commandments that he will frame exclusively in that which is positive. Um, in other words, so it's all of the other commands, we should fear and love God so that we do not do these things, but do these things. The sixth commandment and the first commandment are only given in the positive, because if you don't actually have something worth having, why would you protect it? And so the sixth commandment is we should fear and love God so that we lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. In other words, is marriage a good thing or a bad thing? Marriage is a good thing. Not everybody is given to marriage. And there is a great uh, supernatural power, like Spider-Man, to, to be single. And praise God if you're single, because God has given you this power. That's not something to be um, re rejected. That's not something to be cast down upon. But at the same time, um, we also recognize that not everybody has been given the ability to exist in this state. But in this time, the Roman Catholics had set up uh, many institutions inside of church life that insisted upon a, a life of, of singleness. They would call it chastity, but here they sort of pervert the term. Just like they talk about uh, justification, but again, they pervert the term. Um, this is sort of a, a common theme in Christianity. So if I walk up to a Baptist and I say, are you saved by grace through faith? The Baptist would say, yes. And I would say, what does this mean? And they would define it completely different than how we would. Even though they're using church words, if you don't mean the same things by these words, you, you, you come into trouble. And this is why some people, for example, don't understand where, we at, where we're at with communion. I'll say, for, we're, we're in communion. This is the body and blood of Jesus. And, and the Baptists would say, absolutely it is. And I'll say, oh, so you're actually putting the body and blood of Jesus in your mouth. And I say, oh, no, it's just a symbol. But it, it's a symbol. And I say, no, it's not a symbol. Jesus says is, not represents. Um, and so in the same way, if you, if you define chastity to be that which directs away from marriage instead of toward marriage, you pervert the whole thing. And the problem is, as they, as they were wrestling with this, the desire to, to, um, to be abstinent, how'd that go? There, there were really disgusting things that were happening. And worse, um, because there was never actually set up a position to both deal with it. Um, in terms of um, absolution and forgiveness, but also in terms of just uh, vocational life, it sort of gets more and more perverse. Um, you see this uh, with uh, not just uh, the, the um, sixth commandment, but you even see it with the seventh commandment. Um, so for example, is it easier or harder to get a job once you have a felony? Oh, it's very much harder. So the farther into a criminal life you get, how easy is it to vocationally come back out of it? It actually gets harder. And so we're, we're told from the get-go, don't even do the little ones, because by the time you get wrapped up in the big crimes, you're actually setting yourself up for a much, much, much harder life. Just avoid those things. Um, and in the same way, uh, by the time you, you've, well, there, there were monasteries where um, they wouldn't just take the single guys. They would take the married guys, only they would say, now you're single. In other words, I, I got a wife and kids at home. Now, you guys are all on your own. I don't care if you have a way to earn for yourself. I don't care if you have a roof over your head. I'm going to go serve God. First, isn't that ungodly? Yes. But, but more, the desires that existed among most of the people in there, not all of them, maybe. I mean, some of them were truly given the, the wonderful gift of singleness. But at the same time, um, a lot of them actually found themselves caught in very corrupt things that even Luther won't talk about. Like, he'll, he'll give innuendo that a lot of the same struggles of, of the Roman Catholic Church that's in the news all the time were happening back then, too. It's not new. Uh, what happens, though, is when the system begins to perpetuate itself, it takes on a life of its own. So, for example, um, the Roman Catholic Church today, I was told, um, and I haven't verified because Lutheran, but I, I was told, and it makes sense, that there was a time 
um, maybe 15 years ago, where the culture by and large talked about, for example, gay marriage is not an acceptable solution. And if you wanted to be gay and, and religious and you didn't want to be asked every third week, why aren't you married yet? You entered the, mon uh, you entered the priesthood. If you wanted to be a godly man who struggled with same-sex attraction, you entered the priesthood. The problem is then all of a sudden you've got um, a lot of people all struggling with the same sin in a dorm room together. Now kick it a generation so that what, and, and I, I'm not to trying to throw rocks, but now the professors there also came from that same school and also engaged in that. And again, there was no godly way to treat it in terms of confession absolution, in terms of how to actually deal with it in a vocational life that is, is um, good and holy to, to steer away from this and into something good. But you have now third and fourth generations of people entering a seminary where there are people who have sadly preyed upon because they have been preyed upon because this was what that place was. Um, and they went in with the very best of intentions. None of them went to, to, in, to intentionally be perverse, but they went in struggling against attraction, but put in with a lot of people who were also struggling against attraction in a, with professors who were also struggling, but now the system takes on a life of its own. And pretty soon it's just sort of done as an open secret. Um, and again, I'm not saying every Roman Catholic priest struggles with this, by no means. I'm not saying every Roman Catholic priest is a pervert, by no means. Please hear me on this, by no means. But at the same time, if you put a whole bunch of people together who struggle with the same sin in the same room, they start to do that. And you can do it with the simpler ones. If you put a whole bunch of guys in the room and you take the women out, do they talk politely or less politely? Less politely, yeah. Um, if you put a whole bunch of kids in a room and then you remove the parents, do they, do they quiet down and sit in a circle nicely? Or does somebody scream and get hurt? Whenever you put people who are geared towards the same sins in the same room together, which is why they tell any recovering addict, you need new friends now. Once you enter the program, they say, get new friends. You cannot go back to your old friends because it, it's dangerous. Um, if you put a whole bunch of people in, in a, to a, um, an, a life with a vow of abstinence who are not given the supernatural gift of singleness, you cannot be surprised when these things happen. But what's worse is, is that um, in all of it, you've defined chastity as that which pushes away from a good gift of God, marriage, and into something that only ends in something that can only be called unchaste. Because remember, we define chastity as this. What if God thought it would be great for you to have a healthy, happy family someday? And there were things that would help that, those were chaste. And there were things that would hinder that, and those are unchaste. See, it's, it's a vicious, vicious cycle that, that happens here. Are you kind of with me here? Questions, comments? Could that be why that type of behavior might be more accepted now? Because there's so many leaders... Yeah. You know, because you get a whole bunch together, they're not going to think what they do is wrong. And they're not going to want to think what they do is wrong. So it becomes more accepted. There's a pattern to how these things have always gone. Um, not just with, with uh, the, the marriage movement, uh, but, but so many others too. Uh, the very first thing they want is just to be allowed to do it in peace. So you, you don't have to agree with it, but just let us, let us do it without persecuting us. And then it, it becomes, you should, you should also do it without disagreeing with it. And then it becomes, you must do it yourself, always. Um, and so the first thing that the marriage movement in R started with was, look, you don't have to agree with it, but just like maybe don't throw rocks at us for it. And then it became, a, a, this is a, a normal thing even if you disagree with it. And then it became intolerant to disagree with it at all. And now if you don't actually recognize it, you can be sued. Like the cake maker who would make the cake. Right. Um, and um, this, is, this is always the way of the push. Um, we're in the middle of it right now with uh, the gender issues. Um, because it, again, it was sort of a, um, we just want to be left alone. And now it's a, if you don't refer to us by the right pronouns, we will sue you. Um, and, and so they'll, they'll grab just enough of a foothold and then they'll push. But the church has done it too. Like, honestly, the, for, for better or for worse, they learned it from us. Uh, our, our push into the government actually happened this way. Um, in the ancient church before Constantine, we were illegal. And we always said, was like, we don't, we don't want the world 
to, to be forced into this. We just want to be left alone. Please stop killing us. It'd be great if you would stop putting us in lion dens. Like, please don't burn me alive if, if that's all right with you. Um, the thing is, as soon as we got Constantine, a king, uh, an, uh, an emperor, who had the power to, to um, actually enact some change, uh, we weren't contentious to see Christianity legalized. Under Constantine, if you did not get baptized, you got your head cut off with an axe. That's a push too far, but that's largely where Western Christendom came from. Um, and also, along with that, um, do you know when almost every major heresy entered Christianity? It was under Constantine, because I can make you get baptized, but I can't necessarily make you believe this stuff or care about it. Um, there, were, there were one to two major heresies before Constantine. Afterwards, all of the rest come pouring in, because you have a whole bunch of people who um, now they, they know they've got to get baptized and they know they're Christian, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've ever heard the truth preached, let alone believe it. Um, it it's an ugly thing. And in the same way, you've got um, like Luther, as, as he's writing this way, he's not just trying to blast the Pope, but there are people actually in, in the time as the large catechism is being published that are in um, monasteries that are in nunneries and all they've ever been told is if if you actually want to have a, a happy marriage that's sinful and that's not really loving god and luther is desperate to get them that this message of of hope that that actually god wills this as a good thing an image of christ in the church and, and all those things that you know you're seeing in the monastery and the nunneries that that you shouldn't be seeing you're allowed to actually think those are wrong and those only exist because we've sort of buried us in and hoped it go away instead of actually forgiving it and moving forward in light of the gospel. So yeah, in all of this, uh, marriage is chiefly a good thing. If you want to talk about all the thou shalt nots, we can do that. But if you don't first see marriage as a gift, none of those will ever make sense. And that's where we are right now in our culture. Um, so right now, um, as the Christian church confronts uh, the morality of the 21st century, do we speak more about the gift of marriage or more about the sins of the culture? Let's be honest. We speak way more about the sins of the culture and they don't understand us because it's not because they don't understand that our God calls those things sin. It's because they don't care first because they don't know who he is and what his love is. And second, because they never actually understood why marriage would be worth defending in the first place. If we actually put forward marriage as a gift of God and our religion is gospel and not just law, we can actually start to have uh, hard conversations and it won't just win the battle. It, it won't just end the, the attractions that people are struggling with, but it will at least show why it is we're struggling for this thing in the face of what, if we're going to be honest, is a lot more popular because it seems to be a lot more fun. Like nobody's ever sort of encouraged people away from sin by saying this will be way less fun and you'll hate it, but do it anyway. Um, would, would you rather binge watch Netflix or clean the house? If you're going to get the house clean, it's not going to be because you describe cleaning as a more fun act. It's because you're going to actually say, you know what, you'll actually feel way better if you're not sitting in your own filth. You actually have to paint the picture of what is good before you can ever actually start to, to convey. And so in the first and the sixth commandment, Luther is um, catching on to something and he's laying linchpins. If you want to understand why we do church the way that we do, first you have to understand who our God is. Because if you don't understand who our God is, our church will never make sense. And that's completely true. If you've ever come into Lutheranism from the outside, we are weird. Like I came in from the outside and I didn't understand how any of this worked. But as I understood who our God was, I understood why these things mattered. But if nobody taught me who God was, why, why do you care what communion is? Why do you care what the liturgy is? Why do you care about any of these things? Well, it's because they all point to God and I care about God. And in the same way, if we actually want to start to talk about a civilization and where it rises and falls, uh, we're going to start with two things, the, the fourth commandment, which needs uh, some sword, and then eventually what marriage is. This is all coming to family, both times. If you have a family in place, culture will thrive. And if you destroy the family, culture will always crumble, always. And so what we're seeing right now is a culture that's starting to look pretty shaky. But what got, what got knocked out first? The family. You guys have questions or comments online remember to unmute yourself
All right. Um, let's carry forward at 217. And again, Luther's going to drive at this point. Um, now I speak of this in order that the young may be so guided that they conceive a liking for the married estate. Again, why is Luther doing this whole thing? Hey, kids, not just here's a long list of things that will make Jesus not be thrilled with you and make you feel ashamed, but hey, kids, you should understand that it's a gift to get married. And that should be something to strive for. Know that it is a blessed estate and pleasing to God. For in this way, we might in the course of time bring it about that married life be restored to honor. That there might be less of the filthy, dissolute, disorderly doings which now run riot the world over in open prostitution and other shameful vices arising from disregard of married life. Which again sounds very timely, doesn't it? That sounds like today. So praise God that that sounds like today. It's a gift that this sounds like today. Because Luther thought the whole world was about to collapse in on itself. Did God keep it? Are we still here? Okay. So it looks pretty bad right now, too. I'm not saying that's a good thing. But at the same time, it looks just as bad now as it did in the 1540s when Luther wrote this. But God keeps his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us here. And so we'll do for two things. One, we'll, we'll speak the truth and hope and love. But at the same time, our hope will not be in how we can perfectly restore the estate of marriage. Our hope will be in the Lord. All the while, though, let's, let's maybe talk about marriage as a good thing. Because if people are going to think that, hey, it'd be great to grow up and get married one day, it can't just be a list of things not to do. Yeah, go ahead, Linda. Can you forward the writing? We can't see anything you're oh, reading. Oh, sorry. Thank you. This is what happens when nobody throws anything at me. Thank you. I apologize. Big mouth. Boy, I went far. All right. We're at 218. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Anybody else? Have I done anything else wrong? All right. 218. Therefore, it is the duty of parents and the government to see to it that our youth be brought up to discipline and respectability. And when they have come to the years of maturity to provide for them to have them married in the fear of God and honorably, he would not fail to add his blessing and grace so that men would have joy and happiness from the same. Uh, by many means mankind too, not just men, but also women. Uh, 219, let me now say in conclusion that this commandment demands not only that everyone look chastely in thought, word, and deed in his condition, that is especially in the estate of matrimony, but also that everyone love and esteem the spouse given him by God. For where conjugal chastity is to be maintained, man and wife must by all means live together in love and harmony, that one may cherish the other from the heart and with the entire fidelity. So um, even as Luther, again, in the 1500s, paints a picture of a man and wife together, does he do so with a, a state of um, misogyny, as he writes? Does Luther see the man and the wife as equal? It very much does. And you, like, he actually lived this out, too. If, we have Katie's letters. Katie ran all the finances in home because Luther was bad at money. Um, Katie actually was in charge of all the money because Luther kept trying to give it away, um, it, like to a fault. Uh, Katie managed the whole house um, because she was better at it than him. Uh, when we talk about uh, what marriage looks like as an image of Christ in the church, um, I, this is not saying that, um, that the man is better than the woman. This is saying that it is, as um, husband and wife come together, they ought both love and cherish each other. That doesn't mean to meld the two into a pot and to get rid of masculinity and to get rid of femininity. Um, but that means that, to, that, that each is to actually see each other as a gift and not an object or a tool. If, if each is a gift, well, then there is no using. There is only receiving. There's, there's celebrating. There's love. There's cherish. There, there's um, all of those words. Are you guys kind of with me here? I did it again. I'm so sorry. Here we go. 220. Uh, just above 220, I apologize. Um, right here. For that is one of the principal points which kindle love and desire of chastity, so that where this is found, chastity will follow as a matter of course without any command. Therefore, also, St. Paul so diligently exhorts husband and wife to love and honor one another. There's a... Um, big thing right here. 
if husband and wife truly see each other as a gift, is there any real need to talk about the sixth commandment as a command? No. If husband and wife truly look at each other as gift, there's no talk of adultery. There's no talk of unchastity. That only ever enters in, well, if this is the greatest gift in the world, why would I not love? But in the same way with the first commandment, you can command, you shall have no other gods. But to truly understand who your God is, why would you want them? Where this is in place, the command is not needed. The command is needed because we're sinners. And that's not then to set a bar. If you really, really loved your wife, you, you're a sinner. You're not a perfect example of this. If you really, really loved your God, you'd have no idols. But all of us do. This isn't a question of, can you get to the point where you need not the law? This is a question of, in the resurrection of the flesh, will the law be a reflection of God's character, or will the law be used as a mirror against you? In the resurrection, it's still a reflection of who God is. He loves this, this union. He loves family. He, he loves his creation. He loves you. But the point of the law then will stop being simply to make me realize how much I need Jesus. And the sixth commandment makes me realize I need Jesus. If I always saw my family as the gift that it was, I wouldn't be the sinner that I am. That's a bad thing. So who did Jesus die for? Me. So therefore, St. Paul diligently urged husband and wife to love and honor one another. This is where he talks about, again, the image of Christ and the church, where Christ presents the church blameless, without blemish or spot, holy and undefiled. And if you know the church that he's talking to, that's laughable. Like as Paul writes to the churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Galatia, um, there are awful things happening, not just in the towns, but even in the congregation, some worse than others. But this is who Paul says is, is to be seen as holy and without blemish or spot. In Ephesus at this time, the biggest church in town is the Temple of Artemis, uh, which is a goddess of where there are temple prostitutes. This is, this is the, the only game in town. Um, this is where business is done, not just where religion is practiced. So he writes to the Christians in Ephesus, who are sometimes also going to work in the Temple of Artemis, you are without blemish or spot, holy and undefiled, because marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. All of this is to drive us towards Jesus. You guys kind of with me? 221. Here you have again a precious, yea, many great and good works of which you can joyfully boast. And again, all ecclesiastical estates chosen without God's word, command. In other words, marriage good, anything that says marriage bad, that's bad. Any questions? Yeah. What about when you're divorced? Uh -huh. Is it wrong to marry again? I've always had a problem with that. So Jesus himself says, any man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Right. So is it a sin? Okay. Yes. Can sins be forgiven? Yeah. So like, let's, let's recognize this. And again, when we talk about this, when Jesus talks about divorce, it is not to kick people out of the church. It is not to make them seen as less lovable. It's to acknowledge the pain that comes from divorce. So let, let me put it to you this way. If you're ever on your second marriage, is there going to be some baggage that you're going to have to be aware of so that you don't fall into pitfalls? Let's talk about it that way. When we talk about sin, that, that's something that got broke along the way that needs to be addressed, both in terms of forgiveness and in terms of care of soul and body and mind. And so, is it a sin to get divorced? Yes. At the same time, even while acknowledging it as a sin, does God allow divorce in certain cases? Yes. In the scriptures, um, infidelity and abandonment um, and abuse are, are, are sort of the three big ones. Um, and so in this case, I can say, um, if, for example, your husband is abusing you, you should leave him. And I'll say it again. If your husband is abusing you, you should leave him. Is it a sin to get divorced? Yes, but the point of that is not to say you should subject yourself to hurt. The point is to say, even in leaving him, you need Jesus. There's going to be something that's not, not just unto your body now, but to your soul. This is a painful thing to endure. And so when we deal with you in love and mercy, we want to deal with this in a way that we can actually say, this thing that you went through, it's allowed to hurt. This thing that we went through, we're calling it wrong so that we can actually start to apply the medicine to it. And in the same way, when, when a person gets divorced and then remarried, they come in with baggage. Um, this is the great issue of, of cohabitation of our day, honestly. Um, it, it's usually not the kids are shacking up. 
It's that a whole bunch of kids have gone through like four or five divorces before they ever actually stand in the church and say, this is the one. Because they, they gave their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole body to a person and then ripped that in half. And they're carrying the scars of that, the sins of that, and they've never actually addressed them. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That's a sin. Can sins be forgiven? So confession and absolution should very much be a part of any premarital counseling, no matter where you come from. And for me, it is. Like, if, if you want to talk to me about getting married, be it your first marriage or your sixth, the very first thing that we do, the very first thing that we do, the very first session, is we do confession and absolution. Because there's no way to actually get to the point where you want to marry somebody without breaking the sixth commandment in some way, shape, or form. Like, if you can truly say, I want to marry this person, but I'm not attracted to her in any lustful way at all, I'm going to say, yeah, you, that, you should maybe revisit this. Um, but on the other hand, if that is that sin, which Jesus himself says, if any man looks at a woman in his heart with lust, it is committing adultery. Let's start in terms of mercy. There's going to be some stuff we're going to have to work through, but let's do it under the light of the gospel and not just under, these are the things that if you felt or experienced or been through or endured, God will not love you because that's never the case. God loves the sinners, but he actually wants to heal. And so the first thing in healing is actually addressing the wound. And so, yeah, that, it, it's a wound. But let, let's call it forgiven in Christ and move forward in light of it. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Again, when we deal with the law, the law is not to drive us away from Christ. It's actually to drive us toward him. And if um, our, our position on these things um, is, is conveying a God who actually wants less people around him, we're doing it wrong. Um, that doesn't mean it's okay. It's not okay. The whole point in calling it a sin is that we can say it's not okay, and that's why there's some baggage with it. That's why there's some hurt with it. And we should talk about it. And we should be in a room that loves forgiveness so much that we can talk about it. Because that's actually the hard thing. Um, we can do it, um, we can do it with, with health, too. Um, in Nebraska, I had a guy, um, a really great guy, uh, but he smoked five packs a day. Um, and he, he, the symptoms were all there, but he wouldn't go to the doctor because he didn't like, he didn't, didn't like doctors. Um, by the time somebody made him go, it was, it was far along. Um, we actually want to address it. When the doctor says, this is the disease and I want to, it's not to make you feel bad and it's not to get you farther from him. It's to, it's to again, to apply healing. Um, Christ calls himself the great physician. And he says, the healthy have no need of the physician, but the sick. Therefore, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Apply that there and see why God is giving these things the way that he is. Um, this is one of those things where um, Matthew chapter 7, uh, which is actually the, the verse when we got married, uh, gives. If Jesus says, if anyone builds a, a house on sand, when the storm comes, and the winds blow, and the waves come, that house will fall. But if anyone builds a house on the rock, the storm will come, but it will stand. You build it on what you've got, that shaky ground, because both of you have those sins, those baggages, uh, those, 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 those wounds. If you build a house on Christ, the same storms will come. But you're, you're hoping on something more than just your ability to build a perfect life for each other. Ours is on Christ, the rock, the forgiveness of sins. And so you'll still have all the same problems that non-Christians have in your marriage. But you have some place to take them now, a place to receive healing for them, so that there's a path forward. What do you all think out there? Great points. Thank you. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So how about the seventh commandment? We got some time. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. So um, just from what we've learned so far, God gives a fifth commandment. You shall not murder because he actually loves your life and he doesn't want anybody to take it from you. And he gives a sixth commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery because he actually esteems marriage so much that nobody should come and take your spouse from you. If he says thou shalt not steal, what does God give you and want you to keep? Yeah, your stuff. Like, you can just flat say, my stuff. Um, Christians have this sort of anti-materialist vibe that we sort of hide in a closet, that if you have stuff, that must mean that, that you're a pagan. Um, we'll grab hold of, like, verses out of context. Like, it's, uh, it's easier for a rich man to uh, pass through the eye of a needle. Or, excuse me, it's easier for uh, a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we'll say, God hates, uh, God hates rich people. God only loves poor people. Um, which... Well, if he gives a seventh commandment, does God want 
the rich people to keep their stuff? Yes. Does God want the poor people to keep their stuff? Yes. Because God doesn't love you based on your material income. God loves you based on the cross of Christ. When he gives you this, uh, this, pass, uh, this passage, it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What he means is there's more temptation to find uh, an idol in mammon if you have lots of mammon. Um, in the same way, it's probably harder to be chaste if you spend all your time in gentlemen's clubs. And it's probably harder to stay sober if you spend all of your time in bars. There is an extra temptation to those who have been burdened with wealth because they've all been called to manage this and rejoice in these as gifts from God, but never place the gifts with the giver. You with me? You already found some stuff? No, I'm just... Are you, you peeking ahead? Awesome. What do you guys think? You ready? All right, here we go. Thou shalt not steal. After your person and spouse, temporal property comes next. This also God wishes to have protected. As he has commanded that no one shall subtract from or curtail his neighbor's possessions. Again, God doesn't want anybody to steal your stuff. He gave it to you. He wanted you to have it. If he didn't want you to have it, he wouldn't have given it to you. Stealing bad. For to steal is nothing else than to get possession of another's property wrongfully, which briefly comprehends all kinds of advantage and all sorts of trade to the disadvantage of neighbor. Now, this is indeed quite a widespread and common vice, but so little regarded and observed that it exceeds all measure, so that if all who are thieves and yet do not wish to be called such were to be hanged in gallows, the world would soon be devastated and there would be both a lack of executioners and gallows. In other words, if we actually talk about stealing, not just as like pickpocketing, not just as mugging you on the street, we have to talk about it as this way. Stealing is any way which um, gets possession of another's property wrongfully, which happens so commonly in business today that if we're gonna actually talk about this in terms of real theft and actually bring about executioners, everybody would be dead. In other words, everybody's a sinner. We all need Jesus. You with me? Of course, we have said to steal is to signify not only to empty our neighbor's coffers and pockets, but to be grasping in the market, in all stores, booths, wine and beer sellers, workshops, and in short, wherever there's trading or taking and giving of money for merchandise or labor. So when you come together in commerce, is commerce a good thing or a bad thing? Commerce is a good thing. Money, is money a good thing or a bad thing? You, you don't have to be coy about this. Jesus says the love of money, excuse me, Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, not, not money, but the love of money. Money is a really simple thing. Now, if I want to tank a gas, I don't need to bring around a whole bunch of chickens and try and trade somebody for them. Money is simply an expression of desire. Um, I, I desire to see my family cared for. And so instead of bringing around stuff to trade, we can sort of do it quickly. The love of money is the problem because that's the love of stuff that's not mine. When we start to do this way, commerce is a good thing. Commerce keeps the city going. Commerce keeps everybody fed. Commerce means I don't necessarily have to know how to butcher a cow to eat a hamburger. And I'm glad. When commerce becomes sinful, it's twisted over on itself and it says, I don't care if everything falls apart as long as I get ahead. I don't care if you starve butcher as long as I get extra hamburger. The problem with that is not only do you see the, the, um, the sin done to the neighbor, but you see eventually where the whole system can fall apart this way. It, it, I mean, honestly, if every butcher is driven out of business, where are you gonna get your hamburger? So we can't, we can't be having this. Commerce is not a bad thing, but when we enter commerce with the intent to, um, to hurt our neighbor, to, to get his property wrongfully, that's theft. We talk about it that way. You with me so far? I ask, for instance, to explain this somewhat grossly for the common people, that it may be seen how godly we are. When a manservant or maidservant does not serve faithfully in a house and does damage or allows it to be done when it could be prevented or otherwise ruins and neglects the goods entrusted to him from indolence, idleness, or malice, 
and in, uh, or to the spite and vexation of master and mistress, and in whatever way this can be done purposely, for I don't speak of what happens from oversight or against one's will, you can, in a year, abscond 30, 44, which if another had taken secretly and carried away, he would have hanged with a rope. But here, you, while conscious of great theft, may even bid defiance and become insolent, and no one dare call you a thief. In other words, when I was 15, I worked at McDonald's, and I made $5.15 an hour, and McDonald's was not a fun place to work. When I worked for $5.15 at McDonald's, did I actually work all of the time? I think I've already told you, we played uh, chicken nugget hockey. We didn't serve the chicken nuggets afterwards. They threw, they, we threw them away, but we took brooms and we played hockey with chicken nuggets, and then we threw them away. I promise we never served them. Um, did you know that a filet of fish sandwich will explode as it hits a wall if you throw it? They're like little hand grenades. It's like a water balloon of, of fish-ish substance and tartar sauce. Um, and I know this because we would chuck them at each other. And uh, yeah, I know. Um, what I'm telling you is I never, ever, ever reached into the cash register and stole $30. But I can guarantee you there is a shift where I probably didn't do much more than a 20 minutes worth of work in eight hours. Okay, they're paying me to work for eight hours. Did I work for eight hours? If I wouldn't reach into the cash register and grab the money, why am I going to take it in a paycheck when I didn't actually earn it? Now we're going to start to talk about theft in this light. You see where we're going? If you're painting a picture of the law that lets you call other people a sinner but not you, you're using the law wrong. This commandment is given to make sinners of us all. This commandment is actually given to uphold a business. Um, nobody wanted to hear, oddly enough, that we played chicken nugget hockey. How come you guys didn't, I enjoyed chicken nugget hockey. Why does it bother you? Well, because that's not how any business should run. It's not only foolish, it's reckless and dangerous and potentially really gross and nobody wants to think about the food on the floor. I know. <laughs> so, so instead of that, what if we actually, I don't know, said, so this isn't the best job in the world, but you know what? It's my job and I'm going to come here and I'm going to try my best. Not that accidents will never happen, but when I come in there with the goal of winning the hockey tournament, because I know full well what I'm doing that day when I check in, because there's teams and there may or may not be a tournament board somewhere. Well, you know, you're not going in there to work. Why are you going to take money from them? Like it's your job. Your job is to work. You guys with me? All right, enough of my childhood. 226. The same I say also of mechanics, workmen, and day laborers who all follow their wanton notions and never know enough ways to overcharge people while they're lazy and unfaithful in their work. Again, these are very timely statements. How hard is it to find an honest mechanic? It's sad that we have to talk about the notion of an honest mechanic. And it goes because like, I don't know enough about my engine where if I take my car into the shop because it's making a funny noise and you tell me it's because the unicorns running on the conveyor belt need stitches, I'll say, oh, how much does that cost to fix? I, I don't know enough and so I, I'm easy prey. Um, you can do it there, but honestly, last time you were at the hospital for something major, how many of you genuinely understood every single thing the doctors were doing? And yet, so you have to put, into, you have to put your trust into these people that they're not performing procedures needlessly, um, that, that they have your best intent in mind and they're not just trying to run up the bill to charge your insurance for things that you don't need. Which we could talk about is theft. All these are far worse than sneak thieves against whom we can guard with locks and bolts and who if apprehended are treated in such a manner that they will not do the same again. But against these, no one can guard, no one dare even look awry from them or accuse them of theft, so that one would 10 times rather lose from his purse. For here are my neighbors, my good friends, my own servants, whom I expect good, every faithful and diligent service, who defraud me first of all. In other words, um, again, um, the hard part about um, the dishonest commerce is that you actually seek these people out. How many of you guys would genuinely uh, in good spirits walk down a dark alley where there are people who you know want to steal your wallet? 
Nobody seeks those people out. But when my car breaks, I have to go find a mechanic. You actually have to seek out a neighbor to deal with. And so to actually seek out somebody who would be doing this disservice, of course, you can see where sin has, has taken root. And so um, where there are those people, we, we must talk about this in terms of, of genuine theft. You with me? Questions or comments online? All right, 227. Furthermore, in the market and in common trade, likewise, this practice is in full swing and forced to the greatest, excuse me, full swing and forced to the greatest extent, where one openly defrauds another with bad merchandise, false measures, weights, and coins, and by nimbleness and, and queer, silly finances or dexterous tricks takes advantage of him. Likewise, when one overcharges a person in trade and watchfully drives a hard bargain, skins and distresses him, who can recount or think of any of all these things? To sum up, in page 228, this is the common craft and the largest guild on earth. And if we regard the world throughout all conditions of life, it is nothing other than a vast, wide stall full of great thieves. This is the problem with doing commerce with other sinners. This is, in fact, why we need money. Um, because it's really easy to, to sort of mess with a trade. And so as soon as we got money, they figured out how to shave gold off coins and sort of melt that into another coin. And we're, we're dealing with, with uh, coins that aren't actually worth what people say. And, and then more, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do the, uh, the bait and switch. Uh, I'll sell you this, but when you turn away, I'll give you that one instead. Um, everybody loves a way to sort of get a, a one up on somebody. This is against the seventh commandment. So again, let's start with this notion. What if God gave you the stuff that he gave you and he actually wanted you to keep it and not somebody to come and take it from you? And what if God gave your neighbor his stuff and wanted his na your neighbor to keep his stuff? And so it's not your job to try and find a way to trick him out of it. Even if you can do it without mugging him, if you came away with his stuff that God wanted him to have dishonestly, talk about that like what it is. That's theft. 229. Therefore, they're also called swivel chair robbers, land and highway robbers, not pick locks and sneak thieves who snatch away the ready cash, but who sit on the chair at home and are styled great noblemen and honorable pious citizens. It rob and steal under a good pretext. The good pretext is the dangerous part here. Good pretext is a common way that we should interact with one another. Who does it hurt to be wronged by more, a stranger or somebody you love? Right. And in the same way, Commerce is a place where you're actually supposed to deal in good faith and good trust. So it stings way more this way. Like if I've been pickpocketed before and like that sucked. Um, I was in college and I think I had like $60 to my entire name and somebody stole 40 of it. Like it was, uh, it was like the end of junior year and we were at Kroger um, and I lost my wallet, but it was nowhere. Yeah. Um, like there, we, we, we doubled up on ramen uh, for, for a little while. Um, hey, come on, you put a little hot dog in there and it's almost palatable. Um, but at the same time, like the ones that really sting you are, are the business deals that, that somebody pulled one on. You know what I mean? The, the, the lemon that you bought or, or something like those, those bother me more. Because that, that was a place where people should have been honest. Two thirty. Yes, here we might be silent about the trifling individual thieves if we were to attack the great powerful arch thieves with whom lords and princes keep company, who daily plunder not only a city or two, but all of Germany. Yea, where should we place the head and supreme protector of all thieves, the holy chair of Rome, with all its retinue, which has grabbed by theft the wealth of all the world and holds it to this day? Um, so we can also then take this into the church. If you're selling salvation to people, that's bad. If you are taking people's money in a dishonest way, that's bad. The more you take, the worse you are, even if you be in a position. And so here, um, again, we can start to deal with this um, in light of good for neighbor. Is a government that, don't, don't taxationists theft me, uh, fellow libertarians, but is a government that, that taxes its citizens for the good of society the same as the one that defrauds its citizens out of everything so that it can build itself up. I would say those are different things. 
in the same way. Um, you, you can talk about the person that stole your wallet and say that was bad, and it is. But the person that, that has grown very rich and powerful, who in a noble office defrauds people on a grand scale, why don't we talk about that one too? Why don't we talk about major injustices? And here, um, this enters the realm of politics. Um, this enters the realm of, of what government ought to look like, uh, of, of um, how uh, our system should be in place. Um, if we set it up so that uh, systems are, are perpetuated by taking from people and giving it to other people who have not earned it, I don't know, dishonestly, that's bad. That, that, that's bad. If you come and you take my money and, and you don't actually give the services which you're supposed to give by it, but you instead pop up a, an organization so that a whole bunch of people can have retirement plans that have not worked, that's not, that doesn't seem honest. It, it just doesn't. This isn't a cry to anarchy, but this is a cry that if you are put in a position of authority over people, when you are dealing with their incomes, why don't you deal with it for their good and not for yours? This is the small catechism. You shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help our neighbor to improve and protect his possessions and income. That means whatever your role, wherever your station, wherever you are in life, your goal when you interact with the seventh commandment is not just um, don't take a wallet that doesn't belong to you. It's not just if you find $20 on the, the ground, should you pocket it or should you actually see where it goes? But it's also, if you've been given neighbors that you interact with in your professional or personal life, you should actually care about their well-being. And if you don't, that's bad. You with me? 231. This is in short, the course of the world. Whoever can steal and rob openly goes free and secure, unmolested by anyone, and even demands that he be honored. Meanwhile, the little sneak thieves who have once trespassed must bear the shame and punishment to render, render the former godly and honorable. But let them know that in the sight of God, they are the greatest thieves, and he will punish them as they, worthily, if they, as they are worthy and deserve. So again, we, we don't talk about this in terms of praise of men, but in terms of, of what God sees. The law is not how can I be popular. The law is what is godly and, and good for neighbor. Uh, any questions? Comments? All right, we're at 232, and that's a good place to pick up next time. So uh, if that's all right, we will, uh, we will pick up at 232 next time. Uh, shall we praise our Lord has taught us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all for your time tonight. Have a good week. We will see you Sunday, hopefully. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you so much, Pastor. Thanks. Not all.